We are today finishing a series in the book of Esther. And so uh, we're going to have to get to work because we've got three chapters to go through. And I can, I can hear the apprehension already. You're like, dude, you kind of speak a long time when it's half a chapter. Three chapters. So don't worry. We're just going to highlight some of the key passages and kind of put the story together uh, for the rest of the book of Esther. But really, as we look at this book, uh, Esther is this incredible account how in the, in the seeming um, randomness of life, God is working sovereignly behind the scenes to accomplish his purposes. There's a bigger story that's happening. There's, there's, like, um, there's something deeper than just what it appears on the surface. And that's really at the heart of the book of Esther. And so I want to start today and get to where we're heading as we wrap up this book by kind of zooming out and looking at the bigger story. Anybody like photography? You know, you can like zoom in and look at the details or put on a really wide angle lens and see the bigger picture, right? And so to understand the bigger picture, you have to flash back about 100 years before this account. And a little over 100 years before this account, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, rolls into Judea, into Jerusalem, destroys the city, burns the temple down, and hauls off um, really everybody that's anybody. He leaves a few of the poorest of the poor there um, so that, you know, to tend the, the vineyards. But hauls off anybody who's anybody and hauls them back to Babylon in exile, which is in fulfillment, actually, of a promise that God made. Um, you know, remember, he told Abraham, through you, I'll... You, through you, I will bless all nations. And then he establishes the people of Israel as his people who will be a light to the nations and tells them, though, when you get into this land, the promised land that I'm bringing you to, if you abandon me and go after false gods and idols, I will take you out of the land and bring you into exile. And so it's actually um, a fulfillment of God's promise. We like God's promises, right? At least the positive ones. Yeah, sometimes in Scripture... There's an if and a then, and that's what we're seeing here. And so the people of God are exiled, and three of the people or four of the people that get hauled off are pretty famous in the Bible. Uh, there's a guy named Daniel. Anybody heard of him? And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I, they're pretty famous too. I saw them once on VeggieTales. <laughs> so you know you've made it if, if you're on VeggieTales. Um, but they're, they're taken into captivity as well and pressed into service. They're kind of the best and the brightest. So they're pressed into the service of the king, special training, education, all of that. And about this time, um, King Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful person in the world, has a freaky dream. Anybody remember your dreams most of the time? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I bet there's like this is like in every family. Because my wife, it's like she has a weird dream every night and... Um, I very rarely remember my dreams, but this Friday I had a really weird dream, and it, you know, one that wakes you up, and so I remembered that one. I won't tell it to you because it's a little freaky, um, but Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful dude in the world, has a freaky dream. It freaks him out, and so he calls in all of his wise men, which were astrologers, spiritists. He calls them in, and... and, and um, my kids, they have dreams, and it's so funny on a regular basis because the first thing they'll do when they wake up in the mor morning is like, oh, they'll tell their brother or sister, I had this really interesting dream, or try to tell us, hey, let me tell you about my dream. And I'm just saying it's like 15 minutes of details you did not care about or want to hear, right? It's like, 
mind, your eyes are just rolling back in your head, right? Well, here's what Nebuchadnezzar does. He calls him in, and he tells him, uh, I had this freaky dream, and you're going to interpret it for me. And they go, okay. And he's like, now, the, no funny business here. Uh, you tell me the dream first. And they're kind of like doing what you and I would do. Uh, uh, it doesn't really work that way. Oh, great king. Doesn't work that way. We can't do that. And so the king gets mad and puts in order that they're all going to be executed. So they're all freaking out at this point. And Daniel hears about it. And he and his three friends gather and they pray and they fast. And God gives Daniel not only the interpretation of the dream, but the, the dream itself in, in the night. And so they bring him in and he says, whoa, 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 don't kill, the, don't kill the wise men, king. I've got the interpretation for you. And he proceeds to tell the king his dream. There's this giant dazzling, incredible statue with a head of gold and, and shoulders and chest of silver and uh, thighs and, and waist of bronze and legs of iron. And then the feet, and it goes on, of mixed clay. And in the middle of this dream, there's a rock that's cut out of the, the mountainside or cut out of the earth, but not with human hands. And this rock comes flying out, and explodes this statue. And if you've ever had a freaky dream, you know how dramatic this would be, right? Just like, that doesn't sound very dramatic. Cinema, you know, CGF, CGI, uh, just imagine that. Uh, and so it's just incredible. And he tells him, and then this, this rock grows and becomes this huge mountain that ends up filling up the earth. And the king just his jaw drops because he's just had his mail read to him because Daniel says, hey, I can't interpret it, but there's a God who can, right? And he showed me it. And Nebuchadnezzar is just floored. And then Daniel goes on to explain to him the dream that there'll be four kingdoms. In other words, hey, man, you are at the top of your game right now. You're better than anybody else in the world. You got it going on. You're the most powerful king, the king of other kings. You're, you're amazing, but you're not going to last. Your kingdom, you're the head of gold, but there's coming another kingdom. And scholars, uh, as you go down and, and hear about these kingdoms, the another kingdom comes not that much later, 539 B.C., the, the kingdom we're reading about, the Persians, the Medes and Persians come in, sneak under Babylon, and, and without even a fight, take over the most powerful, powerful empire in the world. And then the next one. You've heard of this dude, Alexander the Great, scholars believe, who comes through several hundred years later, takes that out with 30,000 men, defeats the Persian army of 800,000. And in almost a miraculous way, fulfills this prophecy. As you go back and read Josephus, some of these history sources, it's, it's, you, you can't come away with it without thinking, man, there was more than just coincidence and you know, military skill here. God must have had a hand in this. And then, of course, a couple hundred years later, this people group emerges after the great Greek kingdom, the Greek empire, called Rome. And the world's never seen anything like it before or since. Incredibly powerful. This iron, this thing that consumes nations. And then in the midst of all that... God prophesies, and, and 
Daniel tells him this, in, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure. The stone that the builders rejected would found a kingdom that would grow. And if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, you're part of that kingdom that has broken into this current world that has been initiated at Jesus' first coming and will be fulfilled at his second coming. You're part of that. And guess what? All these other kingdoms lie in the ashes of history. But about a third of the world identifies with the name of Jesus Christ. Massive population. Here, 2,600 years after Daniel prophesies this. So that's the beginning of the story. That's the context that this is happening in. A little bit later in the story of Daniel, um, he's praying, and he realizes, he remembers the words of Jeremiah the prophet, who, who also um, was, was, uh, was prophesying around the time of the exile. And Jeremiah gave this promise from the Lord. He says this, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promises to bring you back to this place for, and here's a coffee cup verse for you, um, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. That's a beautiful scripture. That's helped me in some really tough times of my life, but it wasn't really written to me or to us specifically. There's application and great principles you can draw. But specifically, he promises the people, after 70 years in exile, I'm going to bring you back into the land and restore you. And we're going to be, begin this, and, and I'll, you'll rebuild the temple, and we'll preserve the line of Messiah so that Abraham's seed will be a blessing to all the nations. And, it, and it's just amazing. There's some really fun passages in Daniel. We preached it a few years back. In Daniel chapter 9, in this incredible prophecy, down to, um, I don't have time to get into it in detail today, but there's this prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, and there's this thing, 77s. And I did this a few years ago. When you add up the math and you look at this from the decree that was sent out, and there's two decrees, and scholars argue about it, but the cool thing is either decree from Xerxes, Artaxerxes, the next Xerxes, that'll come after this one, or maybe it was one more down, I don't know. There were lots of Xerxes. It's hard to keep track of them all. But there's a decree that they'll go back and rebuild the city and the walls. We know that happens in the time of Nehemiah. And to the day, when you add up the 77, this whole thing, and multiply it out, to the day, it comes to the exact time when, when Jesus rides in from the one decree, when Jesus rides in, we, scholars believe, to Jerusalem on the donkey. And they say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The other one lines up to the, right about the time of Jesus' baptism. So both of them, they lead you to Jesus. And here's the point, is God has a bigger story. There's a bigger story when you zoom out. The, the, point, of, the point of Esther, Esther and Mordecai, man, they're, they're on the ground. They're just living their lives, 
and then life happens to them. See, at the time um, when Jeremiah wrote this and Daniel wrote this and the people, then Cyrus made the decree, hey, you can go back to your nation. Many people, and it's actually, as you read the scriptures, it's seen as, as, as disobedience to God. Many people just were like, hey, we're going to stay in Babylon. It's comfy here. They've got really good hummus and high-speed internet, and we're still on dial-up back in Judea. That didn't go much better last night either. I, I should have just abandoned that. But they stayed. They stayed. It was comfortable there. You know, they had a job there. They had life there. They had something going on there, and they stayed. And this is the world that Esther is born into. Her parents didn't go back to the land. She was born, you know, in Susa and, or in, the, in, in Babylon, and that's all she's ever known. And then she, life happens, and all of a sudden, you know, the king gets drunk and angry and deposes his wife. And then before you know it, they're having this bachelor, the bachelor, Susa style, and she's selected as a contestant. And she wins. And before she knows it, she's the queen thinking, wow, I've got it made. I'm living in the lap of luxury. I got manis and petties, right? They're feeding me the grapes, fans. That sounds pretty nice. And in the midst of that, this Mordecai doesn't bow to Haman, and Haman launches a genocidal plot to annihilate the Jews. And Esther finds herself in a moment of decision. And if you've been tracking with our series, you know she made the right choice. In a moment of decision, she makes the choice to do what is right, to risk her very life, and stand up for her people and identify herself, instead of hiding her identity, identify herself with the people of God to do the right thing. As life is seemingly random. And what I, the interesting thing also about this book is it's the one book of the Bible that the name of God isn't specifically mentioned. And I think it's so intriguing because the whole story is about him moving behind the scenes, accomplishing his purposes. And yet I think it's, it's compelling because I think Esther and Mordecai live where so many of you potentially live, so many of us. Maybe we were raised, you know, in a Christian home. We, we heard about Jesus kind of growing up, but it wasn't really a big deal to our parents. And we would say, if we look back at, you know, the upbringing, that, that church was just sort of this thing you did occasionally when it worked out. But at some point, God got a hold of your heart. And God got a hold of your life. Or maybe that's why he has you here today. And maybe he has something he wants for you to accomplish that are part of his bigger purposes and part of his plan. That's where Esther found herself and Mordecai found himself. And if you have your Bibles and you want to follow along, we're going we're to jump through some stuff, jump ahead a lot, but you can follow along in Esther chapter 8, verse 1. So where we left it off last week was the, uh, the payoff chapter where, where Mordecai, or, uh, Haman's evil plot was exposed and the queen finally begs the king for her life and for the life of her people. And 
Haman is then executed on the very gallows that he built 70 feet, 75 feet high for Mordecai to be hanged on. And it's this great reversal. It says this in, in verse 1. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring which he had reclaimed from Haman, this is the symbol of his power and authority, and presented it to Mordecai, who earlier in, in the account uh, saved the king's life by exposing a plot against him. And so he takes this away from this evil man, Haman, and gives it now to this trustworthy, righteous man, Mordecai. And Esther appointed him, Mordecai, over Haman's estate. You just see over and over in this book, God doesn't, just, um, God doesn't just provide an out. He reverses the situation. The, the Part of the heart of Esther is reversals. He's a God who reverses the situation. In the New Testament, he says he makes us a new creation. He makes you a new creation. He changes your heart. Verse 3, Esther again pleaded with the king. Falling at his feet and weeping, she begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. And then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. And I think this is so significant, this little passage. Because once again, remember, she risks her life. History, they found reliefs carved in rock of Persian kings with giant axe dudes behind them, right? You get your head chopped off if the scepter doesn't come down, if the king doesn't have mercy. And who knows with this king what his, what his, you know, his mood will be that day. He's proven that he looks out for his own interests. But this time, Esther again has courage. And here, I, here's why I think this is so significant. Because when we're facing a rough situation, when we're trying, facing a battle in our lives, whether it's a spiritual battle, whether it's the struggle that's ongoing in sanctification to battle against a sin or a temptation that we struggle with, or whether it's a circumstance in society or in our circle of influence or in our workplace where we just, we just want to break through this thing, we want for the right thing to be done, we prefer... To, to have to push through one time and then be done with it, right? Isn't that the way we wished it worked? It's just like, all right, problems solved. Snap your fingers. Habits gone. Snap your fingers. Relationships fixed. Snap your fingers. This tense thing is, is done. I confronted it once. I spoke my piece. Now I'm going to just back off, and it's done. It's not the way that life works. And Esther, she, she goes again, again. She risks her life again. See, this is the point in the story where we normally lose perseverance. And I think very realistically, where she could have kind of backed off and gone, well, my life is safe now, and my family is safe now. But her heart was broken for her people, and she knew she could not live with herself if she did that. She had to advocate for the lives of her people. She had to advocate for the people that could not advocate for themselves. And so she puts it all on the line again and goes before the king. Perseverance is such a key, vital character trait. Verse 
in our calling as followers of Jesus to persevere. To persevere. And you know what? I think this time it's, it's not quite as hard as it was the first time, right? It's not quite as hard. You know why? Because she's built the muscle of courage. And there's something about saying yes when God calls you to do something and stepping forward and doing it that builds the muscle of courage and builds the muscle of faith and trust. And it's not quite as hard the next time. Now, you're still tempted to, I don't really know if I want to go there. It's just kind of tired. It's kind of a nuisance, right? But there's something when you build that muscle of perseverance and of courage and of faith and of trust, it's not quite as hard the next time, I don't think. Um, We used to go up to this camp, Camp Red Club, and they had this big, giant, uh, it was like a 110-foot cliff that was called the Rappel Rock. Anybody remember that? A few? Nope, just me. It was, it was an, a lot of fun, but I remember, you know, you go up there the first time, and you kind of look over the edge, and you're like, it's a long ways down, right? And they stand up there, and they give you a little spiel on top, like, here, here's this little climbing rope. This actually could hang the van that's sitting down there. You could just drop the van on this thing, and you're going, okay, I guess if you say so, right? And then they hook you up to this thing, and, and they get you up to the edge, and what do they tell you to do? Lean back. And you're like, "Uh uh-uh. And so with much fear and trepidation, um, you push some rope through and you lean back over the cliff. This is crazy. I I worked at this camp for a while. My brother worked there for years. And there were people that would take hours. I think the, the longest was like eight hours on the rappel rock. Because it's terrifying the first time you do it. But you know what? After that fear and trepidation of going, wow, this rope actually holds me. I can trust this rope. I I didn't die. I remember later, you just like flying down that thing, jumping, right? See, you're building the muscle of faith. Part of faith is stepping out and trusting God in the thing he's calling you to do enough that it builds that muscle of faith and trust and you know that he is faithful and he comes through. And it may not look the way you thought it looked or it may not have come out the way that you thought it would or maybe even would have liked it to come out or the situation didn't go the way or you ended up losing the job because you spoke up about what you felt like you needed to or took a stand for Jesus. But you discover God had my back anyway. He's faithful. He's faithful, and you have a peace and a joy that comes from walking in obedience and walking in trust. I think it's so powerful. She goes again. She goes again. Verse 5, if it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it's the right thing to do, and if he's pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, the son of Hamathida, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see the disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? I know it's easy for me, but I cannot live with myself if I don't stand up for those that can't stand up for themselves. Verse 7, 
King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they have impaled him on the pole he set up. Now, write another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring, for no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. So he says, okay, here's my signet ring, my power and authority. We're in a bit of a bind here because I can't revoke the very law that I created. And so you're going to have to be creative in this situation. Here, why don't you write something, figure it out, do what seems best, come up with a solution, be creative. And that's exactly what Mordecai does. You know, God is the God of creativity. And I think for people that are, are walking closely with him um, are some of the most creative people in the world. And that if you take whatever situation you're facing to him, he will give you a creative solution. He's the creator after all. Verse 10, Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring, and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves to destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children and to plunder the property of their enemies. The right to assemble and the right to protect themselves. Hmm, those sound familiar. Yeah, they're, they're in our Bill of Rights, aren't they? He says... So they come up, the creative solution they come up with is, okay, there's all these people who are going to try to kill the Jews and plunder them and steal everything they have and enrich themselves. That was Haman's plan. He, he, he offered the king a big donation to the treasury because he's figured, I'm going to plunder the Jews from all around here and take all their wealth and I'll, I'll earn it back in spades. I'll be even richer than I began taking advantage of this people group. And so they write this edict, you may defend yourself. Chapter 9, verse 1. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. But now the tables were turned, and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. I think this is so significant. They did not see this as an opportunity to ramp it up, to escalate, to take revenge, to get everything they could out of it. They defended themselves. They took out the enemies that wanted to destroy them. But they did not use it as an excuse to steal from others. And I think this is, this is such a profound point. Actually, Esther goes in and begs the king, let, let the Jews defend themselves and, and destroy their enemies one more day. And again, they don't take the plunder, even though they were given permission. It's pretty significant. See, there is a righteousness in standing up for your family. There's a righteousness in defeating evil. It's recognized in Scripture that, that protecting your family, in fact, the Apostle Paul, um, 
I can't remember the exact uh, reference off the top of my head, but he says, um, for those that do not provide for their own family when they're able, it's worse than an unbeliever. There's, there's this principle you see in Scripture of, of, of it's your job to, to try to, to the very best to do what's best for your family, to protect your kids, to protect your, your family, to do what's best for them. It's a principle you see throughout Scripture. But they don't take it too far. They don't escalate it. They don't use it as a tool for revenge and and self-enrichment, right? So, when it's all over, when everything, you know, after this day and these two days and they defend themselves and, and their enemies are defeated, and their, their situation is reversed. Queen Esther and Mordecai establish a holiday known as Purim. Verse 20 says this, Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Have a celebration. Have a party. And, and observant Jews to this day still celebrate this holiday. 2,500 years later. Verse 28, these days should be remembered and observed in every generation by every, every family and in every province and in every city. And these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. And you know what's cool? We're going to preach through the, the Gospel of John here uh, very shortly, and I'm excited about that. John chapter 5, we see this, this interesting little passage and scholars believe this is the feast. Purim was the feast that, that Jesus celebrated in John chapter 5. Jesus would have celebrated this feast as they remembered the salvation and the rescue of God, that God was at work behind the scenes. Chapter 10. I'm going to read through the whole chapter. It's only three verses, so I think you can hang. King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores. So it's just tying up the book right here. This is the sign-off. In all his acts of power and might, together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai, whom the king had promoted, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Media and Persia? This is the author's way of saying, fact check me. Go ahead. Go look it up. Verse 3. Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews, and it held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. Isn't that an amazing account? I mean, it's an amazing story. 2,500 years later, um, we're here, and some of you, are named after the character that this book is written of. These guys, right? Well, I don't know about Mordecai. I don't think I know Mordecai. Hey, Mort, right? 
Somebody, you should get on that, though. The, the, the Bible, like the Jedediahs and those kind of names are coming back. So, so one of you, you know, you needs to get on that. I had a friend that wanted, was going to name his kid Mephibosheth. And I'm like, yeah, don't know about that. Um, so there's a bigger story when you zoom out, a bigger picture. God has a plan. And as you go back and you look at Daniel, the rescue, he, he uses these two characters. We don't get the, the sense from the story that Mordecai or Esther were necessarily like passionate, sold-out followers of God. In fact, Esther conceals her identity and lives like a pagan in the king's palace. And yet, I mean, their parents probably decided to stay who knows what the reason was? It's comfortable back in Babylon. That's where they found themselves. That's the situation that they're born into. That's all they know. And then life just kind of happens to them. But then a very key point, they step up and they do what God's called them to do. And it makes all the difference in the world. And God uses them to accomplish his bigger purposes. The bigger purpose that, that he will preserve the line of Messiah that he will establish a kingdom that will never pass away, that will outlast every kingdom and power known to man, reaching its fulfillment at his return. That the gospel will be preached to every tribe and tongue and nation. And then he will return. And meanwhile, he's placed you and I here for a purpose that fits within the bigger purpose of his plans. And in the seemingly randomness of our lives, he's at work. And he wants to use you. And he wants to use me. And he wants to raise up a people who lives for his glory and his fame and his mission on this earth. Who live now in their lives like Jesus is their king. It's what it means to be a citizen of heaven, to be part of the kingdom of God. You live now like Jesus is your king. You submit your life now to him. You walk out in obedience and faith and trust to accomplish the, the thing he's given you. So I want to invite Winston up here, and we're going to close in just a minute with a song. But before we do, as we get there, I, I've got three questions as we look at sort of the whole book of Esther and wrap it all up, I've got three questions I want to ask you. And I want to invite you to, to think through in your life. First one is this. What are you waiting for God to do that he may want to use you to accomplish? See, this is something that I see in this story is that God is working behind the scenes. He is sovereign. Remember what, what Mordecai, and I think it's one of the key verses. We named the series after it. It's the coffee cup verse, right? He says, if you remain silent at this time, Mordecai tells Esther, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. I have faith God will keep his word. But you and your father's family will perish. If you choose not to walk in obedience to God to fulfill his purpose for your life, it will have consequences. 
and it may ripple down through generations. That's the truth. God will still accomplish his bigger plan on this earth. But Mordecai recognizes it may not go well for you. You think you're safe. It may not go well for you. If you're silent, if you don't stand for for the thing he's placed you on this earth to stand for, advocate for those that can't advocate for themselves. It may not go well for you, but God will accomplish his plan. And see, I think so many times as followers of Jesus, we fall back on the saying that is so true. Oh, God is in control. But we fall back on it as an excuse to excuse ourselves out of doing the thing he's called us to do, to taking the stand for him he's called us to take. God's sovereignty is not an excuse for passivity. He's calling you to engage. He's calling you to live for his kingdom. He's calling you to do the thing and take the stand that he wants you to take in this world. What are you waiting for God to do that he may want to use you to accomplish? The Apostle Paul, um, we could argue, probably one of the men of greatest faith in all the scripture, accomplished so much had all these things about casting your anxiety on him and trusting God and nothing can separate us. And and yet, he didn't use that as an excuse. He understood grace, that we've been forgiven and saved, not because of anything we've done, but because of his great love for us, because of what he did at the cross. Paul understood this better than anybody. Go read the book of Romans. Ladies, you're going to have a Bible study starting up this fall. Book of Romans. Grace, and yet he did not use that as an excuse to live a passive life. In fact, he said this, do you, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. He says, I take this thing God has placed me on this earth to do seriously. I'm not a passive Christian. I'm one who lives for his kingdom. second question I have for you is this. Where do you need to persevere or speak out? Esther went again. She went again. Where is he calling you to, to step up again in your life? To fight for that relationship? To, to not just give up after one conversation? To invite again? To, to reach out to again. To fight that habit again. Take it seriously. Get the help you need again. Don't give up. Persevere. Call out to his grace and his spirit to give you the strength again. F- repent again. And say, Holy Spirit, fill me up again. I want to follow you again. Where is he calling you to persevere in your life? 
even though it's hard? Or is he calling you to speak out? Speak out his truth, speak out his love, advocate for what you know is right. For kids, for youth. Third question is this. What are you worrying about more than you are praying about? See, sometimes the anxiety and the stress and, and just the tension you feel is because you're actually waiting. Uh, you're, you're just sitting back passively as you're frustrated about something God's actually calling you to engage in. And you know, the, the anxiety and the stress and the tension tends to go away as you engage in the thing God's calling you to do. Oh, it still might be hard and it might be scary, but at least you're on the path he's called you to be, right? Other times, this is why. You've taken it all on yourself. And you see Esther, she doesn't just go to the king right off. She calls the people to fast for three days. To fast and pray for three days. Significant. She trusts in God. Even though maybe she came from a place she didn't grow up having a real close relationship with God, something shifts in her heart, and she knows, I need God to accomplish this thing. She doesn't do it on her own strength and her own power. And there's some of you that just that anxiety and that stress you feel is because you've taken this thing on yourself. You've been worrying a lot more than you've been praying. Paul says this, do not be anxious about anything. If anybody should know about anxiety, it should be him. He's actually writing this from prison. And Roman prisons weren't, you know, cable and three solid square meals a day. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And if you do that, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts in minds, in Christ Jesus. And some of you need to give that thing that you're carrying, that you have so much anxiety about in your heart right now, you need to just hold that out to God. Lift that up. Say, I've been worrying way more than I've been praying. I've been trying in my own strength to wrestle this thing to the ground. And I'm all tied up inside, and I want your peace. And you can call out for that as we worship here. So I want to invite you to stand. Why don't you just spend some time prayer singing as we, as we sing this song? Whatever you need to do. But why don't you do business with God? And I'll come back up here and pray for you. You know, the, the beauty of this account that's been preserved for us for 2,500 years is this, that God is faithful, and he is working. And his faithfulness was for the purpose of, of preserving the line of Messiah, that Jesus would come, that he would live a perfect life, that he would give his life, God in the flesh, that he would give his life for you and for me on the cross. That's the beauty of the story. And not because of anything you've done or can earn, but simply by trusting in him through faith and what he did for you, you can have eternal life. You can be part of his kingdom, part of his family.
And so if there's someone in the room that you've not done that yet, or maybe joining us online and you've not done that yet, I want to invite you. You can pray a simple prayer um, like this after me if you would like to right now. If you want to take that step of faith. Say, Lord Jesus, I believe you're the Son of God. I believe you died and rose again. Lord, I know I cannot make it to God on my own, but you, Jesus, paid the price for me. And so I embrace and accept what you've done for me. I want to give my life to you. I want to follow you. Forgive me. Welcome me into your family. In Jesus' name. And if you prayed that for the first time, um, sincerely from your heart, you are a child of God. You are part of his family. Please tell us online, blue card. We'd love to know about that. I encourage you. And I'm just going to close by praying for the rest of you in the room. And as I do that, I just want to invite anyone that is on our ministry team. Uh, we'd like to have at least a couple people on either side praying. And if you need prayer, don't leave here without getting prayer. And as I pray, uh, they're going to come up, and, and then we'll close. But Lord Jesus, I just want to pray for the rest of my friends here. Lord, that are facing situations and circumstances in their life that feel bigger than them. Lord, your grace is sufficient to welcome us into your kingdom, and your grace is sufficient to carry us through. So, Holy Spirit, give them the faith and the courage to obey you in the way that you're calling them to and step out and make the impact for your kingdom in the lives of others, Lord, and their family and their circle of responsibility and to live their lives boldly as followers of you with you as their king. We love you. Thank you so much for this amazing account that you preserve to inspire us, Lord, in our walk with you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.